Anyway, right, I've got something for you to do to start off today. Um, I would like you, in pairs in a moment, just 30 seconds or so, to give your opinion on something. I just want to ask you what you think of when you think of what your heart is. Now, just to clarify, I don't mean it's the bit of my body that pumps blood around my body. I don't mean that. I mean the heart in the sense where we'd say things like, listen to your heart or follow your heart. What do we mean when we say heart? You have 30 seconds, off you go. That's almost 30 seconds up. I'm not being generous. This is a real 30 seconds. <coughs> okay, let's have, some th- let's have some thoughts just really quickly. Uh, what's our heart? What would, we, what would we say that is? Passion. Where was that? Passion. Very good. Yeah, passions is a great word. I think that's definitely what we mean. Conscience. Was that Carol? You, you did that looking over there. It's like a ventriloquist. That was brilliant throwing your voice. Um, conscience. I think, yeah, I definitely think that's in there often sometimes. What drives you? Yeah. Important, essential to your life. I like that, Becca. Yes, that seems good. Central. That is wrong. The other one's right. No, just joking. That's, that's great. Uh, one more. Any others? Loved. Yeah, yeah. I mean, often that symbol would be, <laughs> I think, in the fog, would be used uh, for love, I suppose, as well. It means all of those things. People mean all of those things. And that's not to say uh, it doesn't have a coherent idea. I think that that kind of stuff is all in their desires, feelings, even, and I think this is probably what Becca's getting at as well, the central thing, that who we are, even who we are is our heart, really. Um, and in our culture, that would be what people talk about when they talk about heart. And uh, there'd be a consensus, I think, as well about our heart, that, that we can't really change our heart. We, we, just, we have the heart we have, and, and that's really that. So a phrase might well be something like, the heart wants what the heart wants. Have you heard that phrase before? Okay. It's usually used to justify incredibly bad decisions. That's how usually when people say that. You think, yeah, what you're doing is bad. Um, but that's the kind of idea. Is no, our heart, do we desire what we want to desire? We can't control it. Now, the Bible would use the word heart in a similar way in some senses, but with a different flavor. And uh, one different flavor would be that the Bible's not quite so complementary to our hearts. It's not like, just trust your heart, okay? Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Don't mince your words, Jeremiah. Tell us what you really think. Uh, Who can understand it, okay? So in that, there's a clear idea that there's a mystery about the heart. It's hard to get a grip on. Who can understand it? But we need to be careful because our heart's not to be trusted. Um, and leading on from this, there's a clear idea in the Bible that while our hearts are hard to get a handle on, we do need to get a handle on them. We have to attend to them. We can't just say, oh, my heart wants what my heart wants. No, we need to, to look after our hearts. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. And in today's passage in Hebrews, we're going to be looking at an instruction to do exactly that, to attend to our hearts, okay? So if you've got a Bible, if you could turn to Hebrews 3, verse 6, um, we're going to read uh, from there um, to about 4, verse 1, I think we'll probably call it quits about there. Um, If you've been here for our series, we're going through the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, and uh, you might have noticed a, a, a kind of pattern uh, so far, in that what's, what the writer seems to do is, does this, he's, he says, Jesus is amazing. Okay, Jesus is amazing, Jesus is amazing, Jesus is amazing, therefore do this. And we've seen that all the way through so far. Chapter one, Jesus is amazing, do this. Jesus is amazing, do this. And if you remember, I imagine this was weeks ago for you guys now, probably, when Jonathan spoke 
uh, on Hebrew, beginning of Hebrews 3. It was a Jesus amazing passage. It was uh, Jesus is greater than Moses. He's a son over the whole house of God. You can be a part of that house. Jesus is amazing. And here we have the therefore today in verse 6. So I will uh, start in, in verse 6 of chapter 3. And we are God's house if we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. This is why the Holy Spirit says, Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness. There, your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. So, I was angry with them, and I said, Their hearts always turn away from me. They refuse to do what I tell them. So in my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest." Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Remember what it says. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. And who was it who rebelled against God, even though they heard his voice? Wasn't it the people Moses led out of Egypt? And who made God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it the people who sinned, whose corpses lay in the wilderness? And to whom was God speaking when he took an oath that they would never enter his rest? Wasn't it the people who disobeyed him? So we see that because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter his rest. God's promise of entering, entering his rest still stands, so we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. Um, if you've been here for much of this series, you'll know this is how Hebrews works. There's all sorts of stuff in these passages. Like we could go off on uh, all sorts of angles, questions raised on all sorts of bits, okay? And this passage is very much like that. However, just like probably the passage we've seen before, the basic point, well, there'd be questions about peripheral things here. The basic point is pretty straightforward here, in fact, I, I think. And it's an instruction, and the instruction is repeated, uh, repeated in two different verses. It's this, don't harden your hearts, Okay. See, in verse 8, and then just for good effect, he repeats it in verse 15. Don't harden your hearts. And I, I want to say about this. This is an instruction, but it's not a take it or leave it sort of instruction. It's not, you know what, guys, got a good piece of advice for you you might want to listen to. It's not that sort of thing. No, this is brought with a real urgency and importance, okay? And I think you've probably sensed this through the passage. And it all boils down to this idea about rest that's going on here. Because what he says is basically, if you harden your hearts, like the Israelites in the desert, you will not be able to enter God's place of rest. Okay? Let's wheel, wheel back to the context here. This, this passage quotes a psalm, Psalm 95. And that psalm itself, it's one of the songs in the Old Testament, itself is talking about the history of Israel in like Exodus and Numbers, okay, in the time, uh, time of Moses. And it's talking about the time between uh, slavery in Egypt and entering the Promised Land. Okay? So many of you, I'm sure, would know Israel, the nation of Israel, before they were really a nation, were slaves in Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh, Moses, plagues, you know, that sort of stuff. Prince of Egypt, yep. I'm, most of us will be there. Okay, uh, and they, they're there, and God saves them from slavery in Egypt, but not just saves them from it, right, great, you're out, now find something to do. He saves them from it to something, which is to the promised land. I'm going to take you out of this place, and I'm going to give you a home somewhere else, okay? But, um, and so for them, the place of rest, it talks about here, is the promised land, okay? It's the land of Canaan, the, the land flowing with milk and honey. 
But the generation that left Egypt never made it into the promised land. They, they never got in, except for two of them, Caleb and Joshua. Why? Well, I guess there's probably quite a few reasons there, but the writer of the Hebrews boils it down to one thing. Well, they harden their hearts. That's why. Now, for us, your mind, it depends how curious you are, but your mind may be boggling right now to think, yeah, okay, I understand what not entering the rest means for them, but what would that mean for us today? What would it mean for us not to enter rest? What does the place of rest look like for us? Is anyone thinking that? It's a good, good question. You should think that. God, I think that's a really important question. Are you thinking it? Any, anyone thinking that? Hand up, just even slightly, a half. Okay. Yeah, a couple of you, okay. I'm not going to tell you today, actually. I'm going to leave that. Good question. But we'll move on. Um, <laughs> I'm just joking with you. I'm not going to tell you. I'm not joking about that bit. Jonathan is going to address that next time. Sorry, you're going to have to wait till after Easter. It's not even next week, but you will find out. Because there's much more of that in chapter 4. So it's a really good question, but hold on to that question. All we need to know about this today, I think, is what we get at the beginning of chapter 4. So if we can put those questions to one side, all we need to know is this. It says this, God's promise of entering his rest still stands. So there is something for us. It's not just for you if you happen to have packed your bags this morning on my way to Canaan, okay? That's not just for you. There's, there's another rest for us. And it says this, so we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. All we need to know, wait for Jonathan to fill in the gaps for you, but all we need to know this morning is, you know what, this is a really big deal. Entering God's rest is really important, and missing out on it is so bad, we, our response should be to tremble with fear. It's kind of a way of saying, underline, bold highlight, please do not harden your hearts, listen to this thing, because otherwise we won't enter uh, God's place of rest. Now, the question then comes, well, how then do we not harden our hearts? As we've said, the heart is hard to get a handle on in that sort of way. Well, the key verses on this, I think, seem to be verses 6 and verses 14, which seem to kind of, in another way, give in other instructions that kind of match, don't harden your hearts. And I, they'll come up here, I, I think. Um, and verse 6, and we are God's house if we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. And verse 14, for if we are faithful to the end, trust in God, just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. And I, I think we see in these verses two things that characterize a soft heart and that we need to fight to hold on to, actually, if we're to obey this instruction not to harden our hearts. And they're two things, just see if you can spot them. They're faith and they're hope. Okay, let's have a little look. I'm, I'm sure you can both see those words. If, if the word faith isn't there, you can get the kind of idea. And I'm just going to spend the rest of our time talking about those two things. That, that's what I'm going to do. So first thing then is a soft heart is a heart that puts its faith in God. A soft heart is a heart that puts its faith in God. I want to start with verse 14, uh, actually. Now, um, as has happened here, um, here's some different translations of verse 14. Now, we, we don't all often do this, but... Um, Obviously, what we have in the Bible is a translation of another language, and often the verses are quite straightforward. But sometimes there's just nuance lacking in, in, a, in one translation. And so I'll just give you a few translations there to see this verse, because the, the one we read, they all, they all agree, by the way, uh, we come to share in Christ if, and then kind of use a similar language, but it's obviously fleshing out quite a big idea. And uh, this idea of this confidence we had at first, it's a kind of intensity of feeling. So... I was very confident at first, so I should still be very confident. But also, there's more to it than that. I think if we look at the third one, we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. It's not just an intensity, it's confidence in something, okay? And it's not everything this verse says, but I think one way we could take this, and I'll put more on this as we go on, is 
Or how do we keep a soft heart? Well, we keep believing the things we started believing when we became a Christian. We, we keep believing the things we started believing when we became a Christian. I just want to leave that with you for a moment. I think that is very important in keeping a soft heart. And I just want to leave you to think about how, how you respond to that. Is that like, yeah, it's fine. Would there be questions you'd have about that? We keep on believing the things we started believing when we became a Christian. I'm going to make a guess about your responses actually now. And I think there would probably be two extremes in the room at this point. And it was good because I made a good guess. I made a guess at South and people told me this was true. I did it at North. They told me again. So my guess is a little bit more. I I think I'm I'm onto something here. There are two ends. And I think some of you will be like, why are we dwelling on this? Like, of course, that's what being a Christian is. Like, let's move on to something more interesting or the songs, if you've got nothing else to say, please, Johnny. Okay, so some of you might be over there. That's one extreme, okay? The other extreme would be, there'll be some of you who are kicking against that and finding that wholly unsatisfactory and thinking, I really hope you've got more to say there because that's not really on its own, doesn't do. And for you guys a question might instantly hit you of, yeah, wait a minute though, which bits do we need to keep believing and which bits do we hold a little lighter? Because for some of you guys, you'll be like, well, I became a Christian like 20, 30, 40 years ago. I was a very different person then and there's a kind of healthiness in life to kind of change as we go through life and obviously our worldviews change and alter, okay? So which bits do I hold on to and which bits do I leave? So when I was, uh, became a Christian, for example, I remember believing pretty strongly that, that the higher you held up your hands when you sung to God, the better Christian you were. Okay, I, I, I thought that. I thought that for a while. Um, just so, yeah, here, here. Uh, some of us still hold this thing. I'm not going to be judgmental, but I don't personally believe that anymore. Okay, believe it at first. So which of those things do we, do we hold on to, you know? Um, if you're in this camp, you might just say, look, the bottom line is this. We can't just keep living out beliefs we just decided to hold on to ages ago just because we held on to them. There's something wrong with that. Now, so those, I imagine there's those two groups here, and there'll be lots of people in the middle. And uh, what I want to say about those two groups would be firstly this, and this is really important. Where you land in those groups does not depend upon your spiritual maturity. It's no question, I think, of spiritual maturity. It, it's largely to do with your personality, actually. Let's start with the second group, shall we? Some of us here, just generally in life, just don't like to settle for the status quo, okay? Um, we, we don't like to simply repeat the past over and over again. Um, I'm glad you can process and see what's going on there because it's reasonably abstract. But anyway, um, you might just get very bored easily in life and you're always on the lookout for new things. You love novelty. That's a novel, just so you know on the side. <laughs> you know, but anyway, so you love novelty, okay? If you're a creative person or if you're a kind of an innovator, you may well be in this group. And you like new things. You like new perspectives on things. Uh, you like different ways of approaching problems. What you don't like is being told, you know what you need to do? You need to believe and keep doing the things that you've always done and that everyone else is doing and do those things forever. Okay? For some people, that just strikes against something in you. Okay? And just so you know, if you're here now and you're feeling deeply convicted and about to repent, that's not your fault. And actually, it's not a fault at all. That's just how you are. And how you are has advantages and it has drawbacks. And one drawback, I think, of this personality type will be there will be, if you're a Christian, an element to your faith as a Christian that will strike against your personality because being a Christian is not always delving into the deeper mysteries of Christ, okay? It is sometimes, but it's not always that, okay? It's not always thinking outside the box, 
Often being a Christian is holding on to what you've always believed and never letting go of it, okay? But before those on the other side start getting a bit more comfortable, um, I wonder if your creative friends may have a very valid challenge for you here as well. Because if the challenge goes the other way, it'll go something like this. Yeah, but you can't just believe things because you've always believed them. That's not a good reason to believe something. While chasing after novelty can be a danger for one type of person, actually settling for traditions is a danger for another type of person. And you know what? That can be just as lethal to a living faith as the other way around. For some of us here, we will have no problem accepting the... Good. Just so you just a note here, just hope for the new generation. There were loads of people in the second meeting who had no idea who that band are. We can be hopeful for the millennials. Guys, great. And those here, great. They're not stained by that memory. But anyway, sorry to status quo fans. I've I've pitched that wrong here, haven't I? It's like, I love status quo. Anyway, some of us uh, uh, are quite happy with the status quo. In fact, we we might get fed up with creative types or whatever, keeping, trying to upset the apple cart, keeping, trying to do things differently. You you might be thinking, like, like, if it's not broke, why fix it? Why can't these people just accept the good things without trying to change everything? And if that's you here, it's your personality. Your personality has advantages, it has disadvantages. And advantages, and it is really quite some advantage, is you, if you're a Christian, are unlikely anytime soon to throw out the doctrine of the Trinity, the divinity of Jesus, and the atonement, okay? Congratulations, that's a good thing. Pat yourself on the back. <laughs> good work, okay? But the disadvantages, if, when, if you're not careful, those beliefs that are very, very important could fossilize into things that you just signed up to once. And they no longer have life for you. You could repeat the creeds, the kind of list of things we believe. You could even sing them when we sing them. But if you're being honest, it could be that those things have become a list of facts you subscribe to rather than truths that infuse your whole being. Okay? The, the, the faith that Jesus calls us to and which keeps our hearts soft it, it, it is a living and active faith that shapes our lives and fills us with energy and love for God and others. There is no other type of faith and we hold on to that faith. And therefore we need some help here. Wherever we are on that spectrum, I said, we need help. We need help to make sure we know which of the beliefs we believed at first we need to hold on to tightly and which we can be more open-handed with and we need help on the other side to make sure our faith doesn't just become subscribing to a dry set of beliefs. Where could we find such help? I hear you cry. Well, funnily enough, in this passage. So let's move on to the second point that I said, because uh, there are two layers here. A soft heart is a heart that puts its faith in God, but a soft heart is also a heart that puts its hope in God. You might not see the link straight away, but I'll explain what I mean, how this really helps us in this area, okay? Now, let's get some definitions on the table, because I know some of us like definitions. It's helpful, uh, because it is, it's, it's not right to completely separate faith and hope and make them totally different. Okay? Faith, essentially, is trusting God. More to it than that, I'm sure uh, you could say more, but trusting God will do us, I think. Hope, what's hope? Well, hope is confidence in the future. Okay? Now, in the Bible, the God of the Bible tells us to be confident in the future. Therefore, trusting him involves hope necessarily. Do you see see what I mean? The two things are kind of in mesh, so we can't separate them too much. Um, But often the New Testament layers these words on top of each other. And I think it's so helpful, the hope word. I don't think we focus on that word enough because it really brings our faith. It really defines what kind of faith the Bible's 
getting at, really. And I think one of the reasons, particularly when we're trying to assess the state of our hearts, it's very important to think of hope because I think that it's far easier for me to fake faith to myself than it is for me to fake hope. Okay? I, I look inside and go, do I trust God? Well, I believe this, this, this. You know, that can be tricky. Do I have hope? Well, I know the answer to that question, or at least at certain points I know the answer to that question very clearly. Let's go, let's go into this a bit more. Um, in a church like ours, uh, which would be an evangelical church, I think we often would have a focus on believing facts. Okay? Now, just a quick aside there, evangelical church, a phrase that I'm sure most of you would, would know, many of you are very comfortable with. Some of you might wonder what that is. When I was growing up, there would be no question, which is another Christian word. In the news a lot nowadays, that word is increasingly becoming quite politicized and for many people, quite ostracizing. Okay? Now, I don't mean that in any political way. I just simply mean we take the Bible as our final authority on things. You know, we've massive respect for the Bible as God's word. That's kind of what evangelical would mean broadly uh, in our context, okay? And in the evangelical church, there is its focus on believing facts. It's, if someone said, are you a Christian? The evangelical response would tend to be, well, do you believe this? And do you believe this happened, okay? Now, interestingly, that is not the case in all traditions of Christianity, okay? It's just not the focus that all Christians would have. And this hit me the other day when I was watching a, a, a YouTube video uh, from a guy, it was a taught by a guy from a very different uh, Christian tradition to me and to many of us in the room here. And he was defining what he thought it meant to be a Christian. And someone had written him a letter and said, look, I, I want to be a Christian, but tell me what it is. What do I have to sign up to if I sign up to be a Christian? And his question specifically was, do I have to literally believe the things that happened in the Bible? And he honed in on, which is a very good honing in on the key one. He said, do I have to literally believe that Jesus bodily rose from the dead? Okay, now, at this point, I'm not going to tell you the name of this video or anything because I'm a bit unsure as what the guy was saying and what I was hearing. Because to be honest, I didn't get all of what he said. It was all about symbolism and this and that. And it's all very interesting, but I was like, have you answered the question? I'm not really sure. But what I heard anyway was a sort of fuzziness here, kind of saying, well, you know what? Believing in the resurrection is a literal historical event. Maybe not necessary to being a Christian. It seemed to be what he was saying, okay? Now, at that point, important I say this, I, I think for, for many of us, uh, is uh, I had a pretty strong divergence with the speaker at this point. I thought, no, I, I think this is reasonably crucial. In fact, I think this is very crucial to, to matters here. And uh, my mind actually started going down the normal evangelical line of, ah, oh, these wishy-washy liberals. They don't believe anything. He's not going to say anything about this, is he? I got eyes rolling as I, I watched the video. But then he said something I didn't expect, and it kind of took me by surprise. And he... he I thought he wasn't going to nail his cousin or anything, but he did. He argued very forcefully what he thought being a Christian was. Resurrect, literal resurrection of Jesus, he was a bit grey. But then he said this, to be a Christian, though, you have to believe in the resurrection from the dead. Now, what did he mean? Well, what he meant was this. When you look to the future, to be a Christian means you have to believe there will be a resurrection and you will be part of it. He was very dogmatic on this. Like He was like, if you don't believe that, look, sorry, don't mess around. You're not a Christian. And you know what? I, I felt convicted at that point in, in some way. And please bear me, hear me out here because I need to complete this whole phrase or you, you can get the wrong impression. But for me as an evangelical, I would often describe my faith in, in terms of facts. Like I, I've said, facts about God, facts about people, facts about the world. Very important facts. The most important being that I believe Jesus rose physically from the dead. However, if that's all I do, it's not enough. If I'm just believing facts, that's not really faith in a biblical sense 
any, at all, faith in the Bible must breed hope. It must have hope. A faith that looks to the future and says, God has got history in his hands. He's pulling things towards a good outcome, a just outcome, a righteous outcome, of which, amazingly, I will be a part. Now, I personally, just to be clear on this, I don't see how you can have the second without the first. I don't see how you can have hope in the resurrection of the dead without belief in the literal resurrection of Jesus, you know, and... I think the Apostle Paul would agree with me, if I'm being, <laughs> being honest, uh, or the other way around. Yeah. But let's just leave that aside. I don't want to be too critical of this guy. Um, I, I, I honestly think, would feel that's really, really important. Okay? However, while I might be able to criticize that guy's theology, and somebody think, how are you even quoting from someone like that? And we could point a finger, what are you doing? You know what? I wonder if he could do exactly the same to us sometimes. Because for me, I know that if you caught me on Sundays, I could tell you all the creeds. I could say, oh yeah, I believe this, I believe this. But actually, I know I'm looking to the future with fear, despair, and panic. We're both out of kilter in that way. That position is as unbalanced biblically as I think the man's that I saw in the video. And I think both reveal a tendency towards a dangerously hard heart. The resurrection of Jesus was never meant to be a fact that we subscribe to intellectually alone. It is meant to be a fact that inspires a living hope. And that's the same for everything that we believe as Christians. Now it's fascinating with that in mind to return then to this story of Israel that this passage talks about. Because if we go back there we see that this, the mistake Israel made was the same mistake I often make in the same way. Okay? So let's remember the passage. It's, uh, for instance, Psalm 95, which goes back to the Israel story in the desert. And uh, I think the writer of Hebrews is referring to kind of the whole thing. If you read the story, Israel is a disaster for the whole time in the desert. So the whole time is a time of testing God's patience. That is true. But it seems he's honing in on one thing, one event particularly. And that's the, the absolute low point of a period of sustained low points. Okay? Which is the moment when Israel are on the verge of the promised land. They've made it moaning their way through the desert. They get to the edge of the promised land. And they send in these 12 leaders that go into the promised land. And they say, go and scout it out so we can take this land God's taken. And they go in and they come back and they say, you know what? God was absolutely right. This land is great. There's huge grapes the size of, I don't know, beach balls or something. I don't know. There's milk and there's honey. This is brilliant. But we're not going in. And they're so forceful on the we're not going in, they convince the people of Israel not just not to go in, but to start going, uh, let's go back to Egypt, shall we? Okay, it's a remarkable kind of turn of events. Why? Well, the reason is simple. Because the people in the land are like giants. Their cities are very well protected. Their armies are too strong. But listen, all those reasons are there, but this is how they put it. What comes out their mouth is this. Numbers 14, verse 3. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Can I ask you, what's the problem they've got? Is it a faith problem or is it a hope problem? Read it again. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Now, there probably is a, there clearly is a faith problem here. They don't trust God. But how does it present itself? It presents itself as a hope problem. It presents itself as suddenly a challenge arises and they look to the future and go, ah! They do this, basically. That's, that's what they do. No way, we're all going to die. Okay? Now, remember, remember about these guys. These guys are leaders in God's people. These guys would have known, I would have thought, the, the law of Moses, they didn't get it that long ago, but even by this point, they probably would have known the whole thing off by heart, I would imagine. 
If you'd asked them what they believed, they'd have given you the correct answers. But actually what happens is an obstacle arises, a trouble comes, and their hearts are exposed, and suddenly it's like God isn't going to protect us in the future. We're all going to die. Do you want to assess your own heart? Do you want to know uh, and get a handle on whether you've moved on too far from what you first believed? Would you like to know whether your faith has become a, a relic of the past with no present life? Those are massively important questions, guys. We, we need to have a handle on those things. Well, a great barometer of how we can do that is the question this. How is your hope doing? When you look to the future, do you see the promises of God fulfilled or do you see just a cause for fear at every step? When those obstacles come up for you, when suddenly you're going through life and suddenly, ah, happens, do you do that? Or do you say, no, my God's faithful? Let's just be honest here. We're human beings. All of us do that to a degree. Maybe the question more is, how quickly do you get from there to God, I trust you? It's a big question. It's revealing for us when we have those moments. Now, please understand me here. I don't mean, are you an optimist or a pessimist? I don't mean that. I'm sorry to put this on you, but technically that is true, what he's saying there. <laughs> sorry, we are all going to die one day. You know? <laughs> that will happen. In the future, we will have challenges, and there will be serious challenges for us in the future. The Bible makes it very clear that it's particularly as followers of Jesus. It's not just the future's bright, the future's orange. Okay? That's not hope. Hope is not just lazily assuming everything's going to be all right. And actually, on the flip side of that, you can have great hope, even if you're fairly certain that the future is going to be full of challenges. No, hope, uh, hope doesn't deny that there are things to fear in the future, but hope doesn't fear the future. You know what I mean? Hope doesn't deny there are things to fear in the future, but hope doesn't fear the future. So how do we keep our hearts soft? We hold on to faith, and we hold on to hope. And to finish, and this isn't adequate, this isn't just, this doesn't do it for today, and it's great to be able to worship with you guys uh, in a minute, uh, but I just want to give you a shot in the arm for a couple of minutes of some faith and some hope. I want to ground this for you just by reading you or putting some of the Bible in front of you to say, look, this is what we hold on to, guys. I just want to say, before I do that, and we are, we are very much drawn to a close, if you're not a Christian here today and you think, well, holding on to faith, I, I've never had faith and hope in the way you're talking about anyway, so I don't know how that affects me. Today, I, I think this will give you a flavor of what it is to be a Christian. To be a Christian is not just to say, right, here's a list, tick, sign the terms and conditions, signed, right, you're in the gang. That's not being a Christian, okay? There are important things we believe, and, and we say there are evidence for those things. We'd love to talk to you about that stuff, uh, but it's not just believing it. We, we believe God talks. Owen said it earlier. When we draw near to God, he draws near to us, and there's an interchange with the God of heaven where he comes and he changes us, and from faith, he breeds hope. And that's what we'd invite you to. If you're not a Christian, please come and talk about that. We can't think of anything better, okay? But let's go to faith and hope. Let's just fire some things you need to finish, and then we'll, we'll have a break, and then we'll worship, okay? What do we have faith in? How about this? That God's in control. I think that's probably a good way to start. God sustains. He started everything off. He sustains everything. He's bringing it all to a conclusion. Paul says of Jesus this. He says, from him and through him and to him are all things. Brilliant verse. From him, right from the start, but not just that, to him. All things will be offered to Jesus as this gift. He's in charge. Oh, this one. God is utterly powerful and he is totally loving. Okay? 
This is what David says, Psalm 62, 11 to 12. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. At this point, I'd like to say, David, you haven't been paying much attention, have you? Because he said a lot more than that, than that, that one or two things. Now, obviously, he doesn't mean that. What he means is this. And I wonder if you could identify this. Have you been at those moments when you're on your knees and you don't know what you've got to hold on to anymore? You just say, I, I don't know what to think about anything. And you, you are desperately trying to hold on to, you can't hold on to 10 things, but you can hold on to one or two. Do you, you know what I mean by that? I think those things, we, we all come to those points. This is what David does. Two things. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. He's subtly powerful, he's totally loving. It sounds so Sunday school, but you know what? There is fuel for faith. It's beautiful. And how do we see this stuff? Well, God sent his son to die for us. Through his death and resurrection, we can be forgiven and brought into his family. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Paul puts it slightly differently in 1 Corinthians. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers. Guys, keep hold of those things. Fight for those things. Never deconstruct past those things. Be careful not to ditch those things, whether it's from disappointment, whether it's from pain, or whether it's just simply because you like novelty. Don't let go of those things. But at the same time, please fight just as hard for the hope that goes with them. Hope for ourselves. Romans 8, 28, Paul writes, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. That is not just a fridge magnet. That's to write on your hearts at the times when you think, we're all going to die. No, we're not. Well, we are. But we're not going to ultimately, because all things work for the good. That's the God we have. What about for the church? Hope for the church. If you look around at the church sometimes, I think Christians have lost the plot. Am I involved in the right team here? These guys like, in different countries and in our country and this leader. and That's what Jesus says about the church. I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Full stop. Okay? Are there things to worry about? Are there things to, 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 to be concerned about? Yes. But is it all leading off the edge of a cliff? No. We have hope for the church. And while we're at it, why don't we just have hope for everything? That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Jesus said this, I am making all things new. The, the cry of heaven is going to be this, Revelation eleven fifteen. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Guys, hold on to faith. Hold on to hope. That is how to keep our hearts soft. And if you do it, you'll know God's rest, I think, both now and forever. And to find out what that means, you'll have to wait till Jonathan comes in a couple of weeks.